back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. I want to wish a happy July 4th to all of my American listeners. I know it was probably a little bit strange for y'all because of COVID, but I hope you did have a nice day thinking about our glorious history as a country and how we're definitely on the right track and don't need to fix any major structural and systemic issues. Ha ha, just kidding. As always, I'm hoping that you're all staying healthy, safe, and sane during these interesting times. I also want to quickly apologize for any weird audio quality that might happen during today's episode because I'm not recording in the closet in my studio in Chicago today for various reasons. So yeah, that's why the quality might sound a little bit different. I also want to quickly make a little correction. In last week's study guide on Ella Larson, I said that she created the tragic mulatto genre of novel. That's not true. That genre of American novel had existed way before Nella Larson had been writing. It was a common trope during the 19th century. Nella Larson simply updated the trope and did some really interesting things with it, especially in her novel Passing. So my apologies for misrepresenting an aspect of 19th century American literature. I know, I'm the worst. Today's study guide subject is going to be Harlem Renaissance poet Gwendolyn Bennett. She produced most of her work in a very short five-year span, the majority of which occurred before she was 25, which, as a 26-year-old, feels like a personal attack. Her study guide includes possible communist plots, a kidnapping, and several fires. Let's begin. Gwendolyn Bennett was born July 8, 1902, in the small town of Giddings, Texas, as Gwendolyn Benetta Bennett. Her parents were Joshua and Mame Bennett. At the time of Gwendolyn's birth, both of her parents were teachers at a local Native American reservation. And if, like me, you are a little bit confused about why two African Americans were teaching in a Native American reservation in 1902 in Texas, the reason was because Mamie Bennett was part Native American, which probably was why the Bennett parents were able to get the job. Soon after Gwendolyn's birth, the family moved to another reservation in Wadsworth, Nevada, where her parents continued to teach. Then in 1906, the Bennett family moved to Washington, D.C. Once they settled in to Washington, both of her parents left teaching. Joshua started studying law at the all-black Howard University and worked part-time for the federal government to make money, while Mam got a job as a beautician and in a nail salon. However, soon after the move, Joshua and Mam got divorced, and Joshua soon got remarried. In the ensuing divorce, Mam won custody of Gwendolyn. However, Joshua Bennett refused to recognize Mame's custody. Instead, he and Gwendolyn's new stepmother, Marcial Neal, kidnapped young Gwendolyn and took her to Pennsylvania. 
Gwendolyn, her father, and her stepmother would spend the next few years bouncing around the East Coast, mostly in New York and Pennsylvania, always staying one step ahead of Gwendolyn's mothers and lawyers who are rightfully trying to get Gwendolyn back. Despite all this drama, Gwendolyn and her stepmother apparently got along very well, and Gwendolyn would remain close to her father for the rest of his life. In 1918, when Gwendolyn is 16 years old, she, her father, and her stepmother finally settled down in New York, and Gwendolyn attended the Brooklyn Girls High School. Before settling down in New York, she'd bounced around between a bunch of different schools, but despite this, she apparently was an excellent student. During her time at the Brooklyn Girls High School, she was very involved in the arts. She won a school-wide art competition and was the first African-American student at the school to join the Literary and Drama Club. She ended up graduating with honors from the school in 1921 and was chosen to write her class's graduation speech as well as the school's official song. After graduating from high school, Gwendolyn enrolled at Columbia University, where she studied fine arts. However, two years into her time at Columbia, she transferred to the Pratt Institute. She had been taking classes at the Pratt during her time at Columbia, but two years into it, she decided that she was going to go to the Pratt full-time because she felt like Columbia University was way too racist. Once she was a full-time student at the Pratt Institute, Gwendolyn studied art and drama. During her time at the Pratt, she wrote the annual student play two years in a row. And while she was at the Pratt in 1923, Gwendolyn started to submit some poems that she had been writing to various African-American literary magazines in New York City. And pretty soon, these poems were getting published. Her poem Nocturne was published in Crisis, the official magazine of the NAACP, which was run by W.E.B. Du Bois in November 1923, and the next month, her poem Heritage was published in Opportunity, the National Urban Leagues magazine, which was published by Charles Spurgeon Johnson. By the end of 1923, she had also published illustrations for Opportunity, as well as having done a cover illustration for one of Opportunity's monthly issues. In 1924, Gwendolyn graduated from Pratt with a Bachelor of the Arts in both Fine Arts and Drama. After her graduation, she was offered a job teaching art at the all-black Howard University, which is where her father had gotten a law degree. This job was a huge deal for Gwendolyn. The art department at Howard was only a year old, and at 22 years old, Gwendolyn was one of the department's youngest faculty members. So she packed up and left New York City for Washington, D.C. However, Gwendolyn didn't particularly love life in the nation's capital. First of all, there was way more explicit racism in D.C. than in New York City. After all, segregation was the law in Washington, D.C., where it wasn't quite as big a presence in New York City. In New York City, there was more implicit racism, whereas in Washington, D.C., 
Gwendolyn was actually told she couldn't go into certain restaurants, certain stores, certain theaters, etc., etc. Also, Gwendolyn felt like Washington, D.C. just wasn't as culturally interesting as New York. The same year that she moved to Washington, D.C., she was invited to come back to New York City to go to a dinner for African-American authors hosted by the New York Civic Club. This dinner was a huge deal. It was meant for the best of the best African-American authors. Initially, the dinner was hosted solely in honor of Jesse Fawcett. I talked about this dinner way back in the Jesse Fawcett episode, but by the time the dinner was actually hosted, it was meant to honor all African-American authors, aka mostly male African-American authors. But Gwendolyn was invited due to the reputation she had gotten from her poems, and she was one of the youngest authors there. And at this dinner, she was going to get to meet some major literary and cultural figures within the African-American community in New York City, aka the Harlem Renaissance. Some of the writers and figures she was going to meet at this dinner included Jesse Fawcett, obviously, W.E.B. Du Bois, Zora Neale Hurston, James Weldon Johnson, and Langston Hughes, who, along with Gwendolyn, was basically the youngest author there. At the dinner, at the dinner, Gwendolyn was chosen to be one of the final speakers, which was a huge deal because she was a relative unknown at the time. Around the same time that she went to this dinner, Gwendolyn also started volunteering at the 135th Street Library in New York, the library where Nella Larson got her start, because as it turns out, everything in history, especially everything relating to the Harlem Renaissance, is always interconnected. When Gwendolyn wasn't down in Washington, D.C. teaching at Howard University, she would be up in Harlem volunteering at the library, getting to know other artists and thinkers involved in the Harlem Renaissance. And lastly, in 1924, after she graduated, she finally was able to reunite with her mother, Mame Bennett, over 18 years after the two had been separated. That same year, after the reunion between mother and daughter, Gwendolyn won a scholarship from the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, and she used the scholarship to take a year to travel to Paris to study art, and she decided this trip would be a great opportunity for some mother-daughter bonding, so she took her mother along with her. During her time in Paris, Gwendolyn studied at the Académique Julian, the École du Pantheon, and the Sorbonne. Most of her art during her trip was going to be focused on the graphic arts, specifically woodcuts, batik prints, and pen and ink drawings. And very quickly, Gwendolyn Bennett got a reputation for being an extremely skilled artist. Tragically, most of her art from this time period when she was studying in Paris got destroyed in a fire after she moved back to the United States. In fact, only one piece of her art from this time period survives, and it wasn't formally discovered until 2012. Beyond getting to study and create tons of art, Gwendolyn had an amazing time 
in Paris. She got to meet all of the cultural superstars of the mid-1920s, including Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, Ernest Hemingway, Henri Matisse, and Josephine Baker. Also, there's the not-so-small fact that Europe, specifically France, was way less segregated than the United States, which meant that as a black woman, Gwendolyn Bennett could walk down the streets of Paris and walk in to any restaurant or shop that she wanted to go into and not be turned away by based on the color of her skin. That had to be pretty fantastic for her. In 1926, after her fantastic year abroad, Gwendolyn returned back to New York City. When she was back in the United States, she got two jobs. She resumed her job as a fine arts professor at Howard University, as well as getting a job as an assistant editor for the magazine Opportunity. These two jobs meant that Gwendolyn was going to have to be commuting between Washington, D.C. and New York City, which meant that she wasn't going to be quite as in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance as she might like, or as in the middle of things as some other figures of the Harlem Renaissance that we've talked about. She also received an Alfred Barnes Fellowship, which had been established in 1922 to advance the fine arts. Tragically for Gwendolyn, soon after she returned to the United States, her father died in a subway accident, and there's some debate about said subway accident. Either his death was a genuine accident, or it was a suicide, because as it turns out, Joshua Bennett was in the middle of some pretty serious financial issues that involved some embezzlement, as well as personal scandal because of an affair he'd been having with one of his secretaries who had initially been his student. Either way, his death was super tough on Gwendolyn, because remember, she had always been very close to her father, even though he had technically kidnapped her when she was a kid. But she had to put her sadness to aside because she had work to do. And most of that work was going to be at the literary magazine Opportunity. At Opportunity, in addition to editing, she also wrote her own column, The Ebony Flute, which she used to highlight the work of African-American fine artists, as well as the art side of the Harlem Renaissance. This column, The Ebony Flute, ran for two years. In addition to writing this column and editing the magazine, she also continued to publish short stories and poems, both at Opportunity and in the single issue of the influential magazine, Fire. And as a side note, the reason why Fire only had one issue is because the building it was housed in literally burnt down in a fire. In 1927, Gwendolyn got engaged to a medical student, Alfred Jackson. This was really great for her personally, but less good for, but less good professionally. As it turned out, Howard University refused to hire married female professors, which was a fairly common thing at a lot of colleges and universities in the 1920s. Having single women teach, that was fine, but for whatever reason, having a married woman teach would be super scandalous and would cause young and innocent students' heads to 
explode. So because Gwendolyn was engaged, she had to leave her job at Howard University. After leaving Howard, she moved to New York City full-time for a little bit to make some money. She used her past experience working in the medium of boutique to get a job in a fabric factory, and in order to get the job, she had to pass as an Indonesian woman for various reasons. After her summer working in the fabric factory, she and Alfred Jackson moved down to Tennessee, where she taught at a local college for a summer. The two then got married in 1928 and moved down to Eustace, Florida, where Alfred Jackson hoped to eventually open a private practice of his own. Even after getting married, Gwendolyn Bennett kept her maiden name, which was quite a statement for a woman to make in the 1920s. So you go, Gwendolyn. After moving to Florida, Gwendolyn did have to give up her column at the Ebony Flute at Opportunity because she was too far away from Harlem for the column to be logistically possible. After all, she was no longer able to regularly see the newest art in Harlem and to keep up with the cultural conversation, so how could she write about it? For the next three years, she wasn't going to be doing a lot of writing, which was going to be extremely difficult for her. After all, writing kind of was Gwendolyn's life. And on top of that, her husband did not want her to write and thought that she should just be a housewife, which caused a pretty big wedge between her and her husband and led to her marriage being pretty unhappy. On top of this, her husband was really struggling to establish himself as a doctor down in Florida. Part of it was because he hadn't quite passed all of his licensing exams, which meant that he couldn't really open said private practice. And then, of course, we have the racism that existed in the South, including Florida, in the late 1920s. You just don't have that many people who are willing to go to an African-American doctor. But Gwendolyn did try to make the best of a not-so-great situation. While she was living in Florida, she did try to keep busy. She taught both art and Spanish at a local high school and attempted to get involved in the larger community. She signed up for various community activities, got involved in local politics, which foreshadows a lot of her later life, etc., etc. However, Gwendolyn continued to struggle with boredom from not being able to write, as well as the overt racism in Florida, especially the local KKK, which is totally understandable. Gwendolyn had lived most of her life in the North, specifically Pennsylvania and New York, while racism was definitely present in both states, and even in Washington, D.C., where she had spent several years, it was never as overt and explicit and violent as it was back in Florida. In either 1930 or 1932, sources vary on the specific year, Gwendolyn and her husband moved from Florida back up to New York due to financial issues they were facing related to, surprise, surprise, the Great Depression. However, the two did not settle back in New York City itself, but instead in Long Island. 
Once in Long Island, her husband established a new private practice. By now, he had actually passed his licensing exams, and this new private practice seemed to be somewhat financially successful. But by now, Gwendolyn's husband was having some pretty serious alcohol problems, which meant that Gwendolyn had to go back to work. And oh boy, did she ever go back to work. Gwendolyn did not quite return to writing, and instead began focusing on various forms of community activism. She started out by working at the local YMCA and then moved to working for the New York City Department of Public Information and Education's Welfare Council, which paid almost nothing but did lead to Gwendolyn getting a reputation for being incredibly good at community organizing. Between this reputation and her past as a poet, Gwendolyn was chosen to work for the Federal Writers Project and the Federal Art Project. Both projects were part of the larger Works Progress Administration, also known as the WPA. The WPA is one of those various alphabet soup agencies that you definitely learned about at some point in your American history class. It was one of those agencies that FDR set up as part of the New Deal to pull the United States out of the Great Depression. Hooray, FDR. We love him. No, seriously, he is one of my favorite presidents, minus the sleeping with his cousins and the anti-Japanese sentiment and the anti-Semitism, but for real, FDR did some really amazing stuff. The WPA specifically was meant to help employ people, mostly men, who were unemployed because of the Great Depression. Most of the programs that the WPA ran were focused on unskilled jobs, like building roads and bridges and schools, which is why we have so many roads, bridges, and schools in the United States that haven't really been updated since the 1930s. However, the WPA also had a program for cultural support, and the idea of the government funding cultural support is very much based on the idea that people need bread and roses. That comes from early 20th century union organizers, aka you need the essentials to survive, but you also need nice things that make life worth living. And two of these programs were the Federal Writers Project and the Federal Art Project. The Federal Writers Project involved over 6,000 writers. Originally, it just was meant to publish a series of guidebooks about what made the U.S. so cool, but it expanded to include a lot of other projects, including, most famously, the Slave Narrative Collection, which was recorded oral histories with over 2,000 surviving former slaves. Famous authors involved in the Federal Writers Project included Saul Bellow, Richard Wright, and Zora Neale Hurston. The Federal Art Project was meant to employ out-of-work artists of all types and involved about 10,000 artists. The project created community art centers where artists could teach and create a ton of public art, and it also led to artists doing research into American art and design, as well as tracing the history of American art and design and all sorts of cool things. Some of the famous artists involved in the project include Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, and Diego Rivera. It led to the creation of a ton of murals and statues, 
like the ones you see in a lot of post offices. I can't give you any particular names, but basically, if you've gone to a post office or a government building and there's sort of like a squarish statue or a mural where like everyone has sort of like a distinct square-shaped body and it's like progress, strength, horses, that's probably from the Federal Art Project. I will throw some images on the website, of course. And Wendell Bennett was involved in both of these projects. In addition, when she was back in New York, Gwendolyn began writing on her own time. She wrote at least 50 poems during this time period, but none of them were going to be published in her lifetime. And while Gwendolyn was getting involved in these projects and community organizing at large, in 1936, her husband died. After his death, Gwendolyn did get involved in a three-year relationship with another African-American artist named Norman Lewis, and this relationship was not the best. It was very tumultuous, and Norman Lewis was most likely emotionally abusive towards Gwendolyn. The year after her husband's death, however, Gwendolyn did get a bit of an employment promotion. She was put in charge of the Harlem Community Arts Center due to her work with the WPA. The Harlem Community Arts Center had been set up by a federal art project grant, and it ended up serving over 70,000 people through art classes and lectures. In addition to the Harlem Community Arts Center, Gwendolyn Bennett would also be involved in other community organizations in the Harlem, including the Harlem Artists Guild and the Negro Playwrights Guild. While Gwendolyn was super involved in community art initiatives, in 1941, however, she was kicked out of her leadership role at the art center because she was seen as being too leftist and was accused of being a communist, partially because by now she was associated with two schools, the Jefferson School for Democracy and the George Washington Carver School. Both schools were really focused on helping poor students, especially students of color, get a good education, specifically learning how to see the whole world and where they fit into it, which was very scary for the political elites of the late 1930s and early 1940s. And in fact, both of those schools would eventually be shut down for being too communist. Gwendolyn Bennett would end up having to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, otherwise known as HUAC. HUAC started in 1938 to investigate the possible disloyalty of private citizens, state employees, and any organization that might be fascist or communist. And in a shocking turn of events, the committee really quickly became concerned solely about searching for who might be communist and punishing them and wasn't really all that interested in punishing possible fascists. And if you're like, wait, private citizens shouldn't be punished? for what they believe in, that seems like it might violate the First Amendment. Yeah, you're right. HUAC wasn't really America's finest moment. Great job, guys. Because Bennett had various ties to various leftist groups through both the Jefferson School for Democracy and the George Washington Carver School, and 
through her time with the WPA, which was really associated with the scary radical left, she ended up being forced to testify in front of HUAC. Ultimately, Gwendolyn wasn't found guilty of anything because, shockingly, she hadn't done anything wrong and because HUAC was complete and utter bullshit and most likely was extremely unconstitutional, but that's a whole other discussion. However, the experience of being forced to testify was enough to shake up Gwendolyn Bennett, and she made the decision to mostly remove herself from the public eye. Even though her investi- even though her testimony had turned up nothing, the FBI, under the beautiful J. Edgar Hoover, would continue investigating her for possible communist ties until the 1950s. While all this was going on, in 1940, Gwendolyn Bennett got remarried to a white teacher, Richard Crosscup, who she had met through the Jefferson School for Democracy. Gwendolyn's second marriage alienated her from both the white and African-American communities because, Aver- because interracial marriage was so taboo at the time and was illegal in most of the United States. However, Richard Crosscup, as it turned out, was kind of the dream man. He completely supported her writing career, unlike her first husband, and the two were super in love. After her marriage to Crosscup, and after the whole HUAC debacle, Gwendolyn Bennett got a job working for the Consumers Union, which was a nonprofit that focused on testing various products to ensure their efficacy and safety. In modern times, Consumers Union is now known as the Consumers Report, and you've probably heard of it because, well, it's still around, it's still testing things, and saying, does this product work or not? She would work at Consumers Union for several decades, until 1968, when she officially retired. Post-retirement, Gwendolyn and Crosscup moved to the small town of Kustown, Pennsylvania, where the two opened an antique shop. They would run this antique shop until 1980, when Richard Crosscup died. Gwendolyn Bennett died the next year, on May 30th, 1981, in Reading, Pennsylvania, at the age of 78. Even though Gwendolyn Bennett lived until the age of 78, she wrote the majority of her works in a five-year period, from 1923 to 1928, aka between the ages of 21 to 26, which, as a 26-year-old, is utterly crazy to me. Most of the writing that she's known for are poems that were published either in the magazine Crisis or the magazine Opportunity. In addition to her poems, she also wrote two short stories. The majority of Gwendolyn Bennett's poems were dealing with contemporary issues around race, diversity, and segregation. She was also known for her column at Opportunity, The Ebony Flute, which was a monthly look at the African-American art scene within Harlem. The Ebony Flute ran for two years. In addition to her writing, she was also known in the 1920s for her art, which was very inspired by the Art Nouveau movement. It was very focused on long, natural, organic lines and balance between structure and decoration. Most of her art was used as illustrations within the magazines that she wrote for, as well as cover art for the magazines. However, due to an apartment fire in 1927, 
as well as a later apartment fire in the 1980s, most of Gwendolyn Bennett's art no longer exists. There's only one currently existing piece of art that has been confirmed to be Gwendolyn Bennett's, and that wasn't formally identified until 2012. Even though Gwendolyn Bennett was extremely famous in the 1920s, her work did fall out of public discussion by the 1930s and 1940s, like most of the other women I've discussed so far in this series. It wasn't until the 1970s that Gwendolyn Bennett re-entered the literary and cultural conversation. The main reason why Gwendolyn Bennett left the larger cultural conversation was because she did physically leave New York after her first marriage and during her first marriage, due to her husband's wishes, she did, for the most part, stop producing new content. There was also the fact that she had to testify before HUAC and was publicly labeled as a communist slash communist sympathizer, which most likely did hurt her reputation as well. It was not until the 1970s, like I mentioned, that she started to be read again on any large scale, although Nowadays, she often is included in poetry anthologies of modern American poets, modern African American poets, and poetry to do with the Harlem Renaissance. So once again, she is starting to be recognized the way I think she deserves to be recognized. So for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick recap of the life of Gwendolyn Bennett. Gwendolyn Bennett was born in 1902 in Giddings, Texas. Her parents, Joshua and Mame, were teachers at a local Native American reservation. Gwendolyn spent her early life in Texas and then Nevada before the family moved to Washington, D.C. so her father could study law at Howard University. Soon after the move, her parents got divorced and her mother won custody of young Gwendolyn. However, Joshua Bennett refused to recognize her mother's custody, and kidnapped Gwendolyn. As a result, Gwendolyn would spend a good chunk of her childhood bouncing between various states and cities with her father and her new stepmother. It wasn't until 1918, when Gwendolyn was 16 years old, that she and her father settled down in New York, and Gwendolyn would start attending a high school for an actual significant amount of time. As it turned out, Gwendolyn excelled at this high school, the Brooklyn Girls High School, where she graduated with honors and was chosen to write the school's official song. After leaving high school, Gwendolyn began taking classes at Columbia University before transferring to the Pratt Institute because she felt like Columbia was too racist. During her time at the Pratt Institute, she studied art and drama and began submitting some poems she had written to various African-American literary magazines. In the winter of 1923, when she was only 21 years old, two of her poems got published in the leading magazines of the time. The next year, she graduated from Pratt and, at the age of 22, got a job teaching art at the all-black Howard University. That same year, she was invited to go to a dinner for prominent African-American authors hosted by the New York Civic Club. She was one of the youngest authors in attendance at the dinner and was also chosen to be the final speaker at the event, which was a huge deal for the 22-year-old Gwendolyn Bennett. 
The same year, she finally reunited with her mother, who she hadn't seen in almost two decades, and then won a scholarship from Delta Sigma Theta sorority, and she used the money from the scholarship to take a trip to Paris with her mother so she could study art. During her time in Paris, she really focused on learning about graphic art and got to meet a ton of cultural superstars of the mid-1920s. In 1926, she returned to New York City, got a job as an assistant editor at Opportunity, as well as a job as a fine arts professor at Howard University, and started commuting between New York City and Washington, D.C. on the regular. At Opportunity, she became known for writing a monthly column, The Ebony Flute, about the African-American art scene in the Harlem in Harlem, as well as continuing to publish really well-received poems. All that changed in 1927, when Gwendolyn met and fell in love with a young medical student named Alfred Jackson. Because Howard University did not allow its female professors to get married, Gwendolyn had to quit her job there. Soon after getting engaged to Alfred, she and the two moved down to Tennessee got married in 1928, and then moved down to Florida. Alfred Jackson did not want Gwendolyn to continue writing, so she ended up having to leave her job at Opportunity as well. For the next three years, she attempted to be a good doctor's housewife, but as it turned out, she hated it, and her husband wasn't making all that much money and was developing a bit of a drinking problem. So, in 1930, or maybe 1932, the couple moved back up to New York, and Gwendolyn began getting involved in community organizing. She ended up getting chosen to work for the Federal Writers Project and Federal Art Project, both of which were part of the larger Works Progress Administration, which was one of the agencies that FDR had started to tackle the Great Depression. Through her job, through her work at both projects, Gwendolyn was put in charge of the Harlem Community Arts Center, which allowed her to become a major community organizer within the Harlem art scene. In 1936, however, her first husband died. But Gwendolyn didn't have time to slow down. She was getting more and more involved in community organizing, which led her to get involved with two local schools, the Jefferson School for Democracy and the George Washington Carver School, which had a reputation for helping poor students and students of color get a good education and question the world around them, aka those schools were very quickly accused of being communist fronts. And because of that, Gwendolyn Bennett herself was accused of being a communist, which she almost certainly wasn't, but it didn't matter. She was forced to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee and would be followed by the FBI until the 1950s. While all this was going on, she did meet and fall in love with another man, a white teacher from the Jefferson School of Democracy named Richard Crosscup. While this marriage was controversial because, well, interracial marriage in the 1940s, the two were deeply in love and would stay together until Crosscup's death in 1980. After the whole being forced to testify before Congress thing blew over, Gwendolyn Bennett decided that maybe she should 
next day, laying low, she got a job working for the Consumers Union, which she would keep until 1968 when she and her husband moved to Pennsylvania and opened an antique shop. Gwendolyn Bennett died in 1981 in Pennsylvania at the age of 78. Quite a life. Super long. And remember, she was only writing poetry for five years of that life. Imagine if she had been able to continue writing and publishing for her entire life. Imagine all the work we would have been able to read. So, do you close out this episode as I usually do when I'm talking about a writer or a poet? I mean, you read a poem by Gwendolyn Bennett. I selected her poem, Quatrains, because it's fairly short, but much like the Jesse Fawcett poem, it's so strong. The imagery, the language, just the power of it. I think it's a really good example of Gwendolyn Bennett. Quatrains. Brushes and paints are all I have to speak the music in my soul. While silently there laughs at me a copper jar beside a pale green bowl. How strange that grass should sing. Grass is so still a thing. And strange the swift surprise of snow, so soft it falls and slow. So that is Gwendolyn Bennett. Most of my research for this episode came from the UPenn Center for the Book article on Gwendolyn Bennett, the article on Gwendolyn Bennett from African American Authors, 1745-1945, a biobibliographical critical source book, the entry on Gwendolyn Bennett from Notable American Women, a biographical dictionary completing the 20th century, the book Heroine of the Harlem Renaissance and Beyond, edited by Belinda Wheeler and Louis Periscindola, and the Library of Congress pages on the Federal Writers Project and the Federal Art Project. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website at sadgirlstudyguide.com, and if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next time, I'll be tackling the life of poet and Angelina Wilt Grimke, and there will be a tangent cast on Anne Spencer. To get the tangent casts, you have to be a patron. To be a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Our tiers begin at $1 a month, and any financial support is greatly appreciated. And as always, to reach the podcast on social media, there is the Twitter, Sad Girl Study Pod, and the Instagram, Sad Girl Study. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let us know how we're doing. Rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks.